Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle, a partnership between Montclair State University and Bloomfield College. People are going to frame this as, oh, it's a it's a rescue. You know, we saved Bloomfield College. Like, that's actually not the real story. The real story is we created an opportunity to really design something special. We'll hear from the new class of NEA Jazz Masters as we look forward to next week's tribute concert. It is a wonderful thing to join the illustrious list of great jazz musicians who have come before me. I'll chat with singer, actress, and writer Leona Michelle about her musical Little Girl Blue, inspired by the life of jazz singer Nina Simone. I was really drawn to her, her voice and um, her, um, her timbre and her delivery. And we'll hear from the producers of the new documentary, Hollywood Priest, the story of Father Bud Kaiser. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Joining us on the WBGO Journal are two people who have really done amazing jobs with their respective institutions. First of all, the president of Montclair State University, Jonathan Coppell. Jonathan, thanks for joining us and great to see you again. It's good to see you, Doug. Also joining us is the president of Bloomfield College and dear friend, Dr. Marquita Evans. Dr. Evans, great to see you as well. You as well. Thank you again for inviting us. A partnership between the two, Montclair State University and Bloomfield College. Montclair State University's Board of Trustees this week authorized MSU to provide financial support to Bloomfield College, if needed, to ensure the college can remain open through the 2022-23 academic year, while the two institutions work toward their goal of establishing a permanent relationship. So first of all, Dr. Coppell, tell us about why you were interested in partnering with Bloomfield College. Well, uh, when, we, when we learned of the, the challenges that Bloomfield was facing, you know, it was immediately of concern to us uh, because Bloomfield College is an institution who has, uh, that has a mission that's deeply resonant with the mission of Montclair State University. We're both about creating pathways for high quality college education for constituencies who quite frankly often are not well served by institutions of higher education. Uh, and so the, the potential for New Jersey to lose uh, its only predominantly black institution, one that's embedded in the community in the way that, the way that we are, uh, that was very distressing. That was very distressing to us. And immediately I started talking to uh, Marquita about how Montclair might be part of the solution uh, for Bloomfield. It just, it, it, it just made sense. If we're going to take seriously the idea that we're a public serving institution to, to stand by while our neighbors uh, down the street were struggling, that, that just wouldn't have been consistent with, with what we say our values and mission are. Dr. Evans, I know you're a really hands-on type of leader. This had to be a stressful time, though, for you trying to find a financial partner to keep this college going, right? Oh, most definitely. You know, we've been working on this really even before the pandemic, looking at how we can, um, you know, make our operations more efficient. And also, again, looking for a partnership that would be true to our mission, but also help our students have additional resources that maybe that we couldn't provide at Bloomfield College. So unfortunately, the, the, the pandemic kind of sped up that process. But what's more importantly, though, was to have a neighbor such as Jonathan to say, we're not going to let this happen. What can we do to help and assist? 
And that was truly a blessing. You have no idea. The relief, the support, uh, it's just been just absolutely fabulous. So we know that this partnership will enable Bloomfield College to kind of have business as usual for the 2022-23 year. But after that, there's a lot of work to be done. Dr. Coppell, can you talk about, you know, a lot of people are at first glance say this, you know, this is wonderful, but then they start thinking about, okay, now there's different athletic divisions, there's, you know, teachers that are involved, there's different programs that may be matched up. So how do you envision this public-private partnership working out? Yeah, well, uh, Marquis and I joke, you know, like that was great, but now the hard part really starts, um, which is designing something, designing something new um, that's better than better than what we have before. And I mean, better. I want to be clear, better for both of us, right? How do we create something uh, that's really serving the people of New Jersey in a way that that they're not currently being served? And you're right. You you know, there are. Uh, you know, a long list of questions, uh, a long list of questions that we're going to have to answer. And I think that 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 actually gets to the most important part of the story. Right? People are going to frame this as, oh, it's a it's a rescue. You know, we saved Bloomfield College. Like that's actually not the real story. The real story is we created an opportunity to really design something special um, and to do something more more responsive to the needs of prospective students than we currently are doing. I'm very excited to work with Marquita. You know, this is, you know, personally, we have a, a great, a great friendship and rapport, and I'm looking forward to crafting that, crafting that new vision uh, together. But there are a lot of really, you know, nuts and bolts, practical things that we're going to have to sort out over the next few months. Those who are at Bloomfield College right now, let's say they're not seniors, they're juniors and sophomores. Will they be able to have Bloomfield College on a degree? How does that work out? Will it be Montclair State University campus at Bloomfield College? How does that work? Jonathan, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> it's going to be, I think it's part of the development. Yes. The, answer, the, answer, the answer to almost every question you have is TBD. Um, <laughs> we're, we, we want to figure that out. I mean, we don't, we don't know exactly. We do, we do want to preserve the name uh, Bloomfield College, and we we're committed to that because I think it's an important uh, it's an important name. It's got an important history and an important legacy, and that that should be preserved. What that means in terms of what a diploma says a few years, I don't know. Um, but but we want we want to we want to honor uh, we want to honor that past. Um, and the idea the idea is that we're stronger uh, we're stronger by the connection. So uh, the one thing I can say. Uh, and, and Marquita can certainly expand on this if she'd like, is that the goal is to do something more than sort of tinker with the finances and make sure that Bloomfield College is the same and everything is the same except, except that you know, the budget's balanced at the end of the year. Uh, this, is, this is more profound. And I, I have a huge amount of respect for Marquita and what she's done here because the easy thing to do would be to try and get enough duct tape and bailing wire and keep the thing afloat for another, another couple of years uh, what she and the board of Bloomfield have done is uh, is bold. Uh, it's saying that actually the best the best future for Bloomfield and its students is by connecting with somebody else, uh, even if that means we're not independent in the same way that we have been historically. A lot of other institutions haven't been willing to make that choice, and they are no longer in business. Uh, so th this is a this is a this is a powerful thing that she she has done, and I, I just have an incredible amount of respect for it. Thank you. Dr. Evans, do you kind of foresee that 
some students who are taking classes right now at Bloomfield will be able to further that class load or get even more experience by taking classes at Montclair State. Most definitely. I mean, this is the exciting part about it, you know, Doug. When Jonathan and I sat down many times just talking about the future and the possibilities, it wasn't just the crisis. It was the wonderful opportunity for innovation and doing something different in higher education. And that's really not just different for different sake. You know, looking at our graduation rate, our retention rate, you know, combining and working with a partner such as Montclair State, it will really transform our students' experiences at Bloomville College and possibly bring in other students as well that maybe didn't even consider higher education or just want a different experience. And that's what we're working towards. So I am so excited for our students especially, but the whole community, uh, again, coming together. A lot of times, you know, colleges and universities, they work in silos and they're doing their own thing, trying to be everything to everybody. We are determined that, again, we know that that's not a good operational model. What is the best model that we can come up with that will be something, again, that will just enhance our students' experience, make them job ready, being a mother of six, you know, can they get a job when they graduate? That's a big thing. Um, but again, this experience in, in, in higher education, undergraduate experience, we want it to be a phenomenal one. And they walk away and say it's dollars well spent, time well spent, and it really transformed. You can see the entire interview with Montclair State University President Dr. Jonathan Coppell and Bloomfield College President Dr. Marquita Evans on the WBGO Facebook page. For 40 years, the National Endowment for the Arts has honored individuals for their lifetime contributions to jazz, an art form that continues to expand and find new audiences through the contributions of individuals such as the 2022 NEA Jazz Master honorees, Stanley Clark, Billy Hart, Cassandra Wilson, and Donald Harrison Jr., recipient of the 2022 A.B. Spellman NEA Jazz Masters Fellowship for Jazz Advocacy. In addition to receiving a $25,000 award, the recipients will be honored in a concert on Thursday, March 31st, held in collaboration with and produced by SF Jazz. The 2022 tribute concert will take place at the SF Jazz Center in San Francisco, California, and will be carried live right here on WBGO. In 2008, WBGO carried a live Village Vanguard concert with the Billy Hart Quartet. Billy Hart in his NEA Jazz Master interview. I play in a in a in a band, uh, not a dance band, but a marching band. And so I guess I was about eleven years old, or something like that. And I got my, uh, yeah, I had my band uniform, and and we marched down Constitution Avenue, and and past the White House, and I, you know you did that kind of marching and stuff. I was playing a drum, yes, a snare drum. If I did badly in class, in school, then I would go to my instrument and and work it out uh, that way. It was like my therapy. And then if I did great in class, I'd go celebrate on the instrument. The 52nd Monterey Jazz Festival in the fall of 2009 helped kick off the comeback of Return to Forever, the stellar fusion band from the 1970s, now a trio with Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, and Lenny White on piano, bass, and drums, respectively. 
Stanley Clark gave some advice to everyone when he spoke to the NEA. I would like to touch on a subject that's really important and near to me um, and really close to my heart. And that is that if you're a person such as myself that's had a degree of success, some people more than others, I think it's, it's our duty to find that special person. It's a child that has some really, you know, unusually tremendous talent and help that person. It's a, it's, I, I was very fortunate when I was young that, um, I played with some individuals that not only taught me a lot about music, but actually helped me as a person, gave me certain understandings that I didn't have because I started out in this business very young. So I think it's very important. Singer Cassandra Wilson wowed everyone in 2008 with a concert captured by WBGO's jazz set. Wilson talked about her roots during her acceptance interview with the National Endowment for the Arts. My parents were educators. They went to Jackson College, which is now Jackson State University. Now it's become a medical hub, but in the past it's been um, a great gathering place for musicians. We had uh, a label called Trumpet, Trumpet Records uh, down on Ferris Street, which many blues musicians recorded in. Uh, we're known for country music. We're known, and there are some hip-hop artists that, that come from the region. Uh, and we also have always had a small jazz community. My father was actually a musician. He started out as an educator, but he was always a musician. He studied music at uh, Jackson College and he was supposed to teach music, but decided not to. And uh, he performed in various bands in the region. Uh, Duke Huddleston is uh, one of the big bands that was very popular here. Ivory Joe Hunter uh, was also a very popular um, big band in the region. That was the era of the big bands. So there were a lot of um, big bands, smaller bands, combos, like that sort of thing, I was very close to my father, both of my parents, I was very close to. And uh, I remember hearing uh, Miles Davis's Sketches of Spain. That's one of the first albums that I remember hearing from his uh, collection. Saxophonist Donald Harrison Jr. was extremely honored to be selected as an NEA jazz master. Well, I'd just like to say it is with a jubilant spirit that I accept the 2022 NEA Jazz Masters Award. It is a wonderful thing to join the illustrious list of great jazz musicians who have come before me and the present class who are all people I look up to and admire and learn from. I'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Arts 
uh, my parents, all the musicians I've played with over the years who've mentored me to become what I am today, and all the young musicians that I come in contact where I feel like we learn from each other. They teach me what they do, and I teach them what I do as well as the lessons I learned from the past. This upcoming week, we'll have the Art of the Story features each day on an NEA Jazz Master. WBGO once again wear the tribute concert on March 31st from the SF Jazz Center in San Francisco. And I'm feeling good. Little Girl Blue, the musical inspired by Nina Simone's life, began its much-anticipated New York run earlier this month. Written by and starring Leona Michelle, the production has been open now at the Schubert Organization's New World Stages. It's a limited engagement, but it's open-ended right now. And joining us is the incredible Leona Michelle here on the WBGO Journal. Leona, great to see you again. Always good to see you. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This amazing performance that you do in Little Girl Blue premiered at George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick. And I remember the crowds raving about you and not being able to contain themselves. You really have done an amazing job as Nina Simone in this. And now New York gets to see all of its glory. Little Girl Blue, the musical. Once again, it's an open-ended run right now, so that means success. And that means for you, Leona, lots of hard work, but this is certainly a labor of love for you, isn't it? You put it in perfect words, pure labor of love. I love Nina Simone. I love her music. I love her legacy. And I'm so thrilled that it's in New York finally. Yeah, this is a gift. (laughs) For those who haven't heard you on the WBGO Journal talking about your connection to Nina Simone, when was the first time you heard this wonderful singer and why did you feel it was so important to tell her story on stage? My aunt, uh, Bernadine Smith, was a, a, a DJ back in her day and she had like a beautiful collection of albums. And I just remember just being in her in her New York City apartment when I was a little girl and just combing through all of her albums and really being turned on by Nina as a child. And of course, I didn't really understand what she was singing about, you know, uh, the message that she was, you know, working so hard to 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 uh, put out there. I didn't get it as a kid, but I was really drawn to her, her voice and um, her um, her timbre and her delivery. Um, and so much so that I, I heard myself inside of her as a child. 
I knew that I wanted to bring Nina to life as I've gotten older, uh, more seasoned as an actress, maybe the past decade of my life. And the goal really was to just quiet all the noise that was around her. Uh, I found myself in a position where I was uh, terribly frustrated with my own career. And Nina (laughs) really was like a kindred spirit to me. I was frustrated. I was angry. and, um, And I took that anger and I made something out of it. Um, which was which is this musical, and I, I sat out to quiet those angry voices around Nina as well. So this is really my gift to Nina. She was coined the angry black woman for so long, and I wanted to answer some of those questions. You know, why was she so angry? Why was she so deeply sad? And in doing so, I, I discovered a lot about myself. Young people, black and white, already know this by any means necessary. We will shape and mold this country together. Break down and let it all out. Break down and let it all out. The last time we spoke at WBGO, you kind of had life-changing experiences going on for you. How has everything been going? Obviously, you got through the pandemic. And what a wonderful time for this show to start. It was supposed to start in February, but because of all the restrictions, It had to be pushed back a little bit, but just in time to have Little Girl Blue ready for New York audiences. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So much life has happened. Even since George Street, when when you had the chance to see it, uh, my favorite theater, George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick. (laughs) Um, Even since those days there, you know, in 2019, uh, my sister uh, transitioned. Um, she, she passed away from, uh, brain cancer. And then earlier this year, my, my brother pants passed away from bone cancer. And it has just been such a incredibly tough time, but through the process of all of that, my saving grace has really been, um, this show. It's always great to talk to Leona, Michelle, congrats on this wonderful show, little girl blue and continued success. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can hear my entire interview with Leona Michelle by going to wbgo.org slash journal. Hollywood Priest, the story of Father Bud Kaiser, will be featured at the Garden State Film Festival in Asbury Park on March 26th. And joining us to hear about this unique individual are the producers of Hollywood Priest, Father Tom Gibbons. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. And producer... Maria Elena Panetta, thanks for being here. Thank you, Doug, so much. So glad for both of you to join us. This is a really, as we call it, a unique production. It's certainly about a very unique individual. I got a call from a guy named Father Bud Kaiser. So he's got you. He's got you. Did you talk to him? I said, a little bit. And he, he never said it in so many words, but you kind of knew if you didn't, you were going to hell. When Father Elwood Kaiser finishes saying Mass each morning, he takes off his collar and goes to work as a movie maker and persuader. Huge big man, big white hair, handsome, huge and lovely. In an industry where many producers only enjoy success for a short time, he created television and film for four decades. But he passed away in 2000 at the age of 71. But now people get to really know the real story, as we always say. Father Tom, your relationship, first of all, 
with Father Kaiser? I didn't have one. Thanks for asking. <laughs> no, um, I, uh, as you mentioned, Father Kaiser had passed away in the year 2000. Um, I joined the Paulist Fathers in the year 2006. And, you know, I, and I, I you know, it, it was about a, a six year formation or study program is another way of putting it. And I would just always hear about this legend, Father Bud Kaiser, Father Bud Kaiser. And, um, and like my parents had heard of them and, and, you know, my parents' generation had heard of them and I never really had. Uh, and then, uh, but one of the things Father Bud had done is, uh, you know, maybe about eight years before he passed away maybe, or 10 years before he passed away, uh, he wrote an autobiography called Hollywood Priest. And so uh, I was ordained in uh, 2012 this is my 10 year anniversary of uh, being ordained a Catholic priest. And I came to L.A. six years ago and I went on a retreat beforehand and I figured, oh, if I'm going to L.A., I should really read Father Kaiser's book. So I brought that with me on the retreat. And it just was such a fascinating story, um, you know, just uh a guy from Philadelphia who, like me, joined the Paulist Fathers and um, was, was shipped out to L.A., you know, for his first assignment. And then all of a sudden just is, you know, finds himself like hanging out with the uh, the producer of the Leave it to Beaver show and all of these big time celebrities of the day because that they all went to the parish that he was ministering at. And then um, and what was just also great about it was not only was he in the midst of the Hollywood world, um, but he also really uh, did a lot of work in in Africa during the African famine, even before like it became uh, it became part of the world's attention. He really um uh, you know, delve into that and help uh, bring the American people aware of what was going on in Africa uh, in the early 1980s and how that really affected him and that there was a real strong social justice, uh, social justice uh, center to Father Bud and everything that he did. And that was something that had also really appealed to me. And um, he also writes about this time he fell in love with a nun and what that was like, you know, and I, I just, and he was really honest about that whole experience. Uh, I met Maria and she was, I was starting to do film a little bit more. Maria was a documentarian who was going to our parish. And so I, I met her and I gave her the book and then Maria said, and then I said, uh, we got to do a documentary about father, father, but I mean, it's, it's a no brainer. Paulus Productions owns intellectual property. We have all the insight, you know, videos. So, I mean, and we had the book that we could refer to. So it was, for me, it was a no brainer because as producers, we're always looking for good stories and it's like, oh my gosh, we have one in house. We need to do this. And especially since he's also the founder of Paulus Productions, it just, it just made sense. Maria Elena Pineda is the producer of this wonderful documentary. And when you think about the honesty from uh, this very unique priest, it gives people who don't have to be of a certain faith to want to know more about why he did what he did about his career and find it fascinating. And the fact there's still an award that is given out in his, in his honor. Do you want to talk about that, Maria? Uh, yes, the uh, Humanitas Prize is what Father Bud started. And he wanted to recognize all the great talent, especially the great writers. And that was another thing with the Insight series is it was such a great crew and cast, um, you know, award-winning producers, directors, writers, um, the celebrities, the actors and actresses that were a part of the project. I mean, even though there's a joke that Father, um, Father Bud would eventually get the check back, 
from people, from people involved in the project. They wanted to be a part of Insight because even though they had their regular gigs on the, on the other seasons, it was just such high quality productions that everybody wanted to be, you know, a part of it, even if, if, um, if the paycheck was a little bit lower. <laughs> and there's a, a, a very famous film that he was also associated with Father Tom. By the way, Father Tom is a New Jersey guy, originally from Morristown, New Jersey. Welcome back to the Garden State, at least virtually. Well, well, I'm flying out there on on Wednesday, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to uh, my uh, my Taylor pork roll sandwiches and thin crust pizza. I even have my uh, New Jersey Devils cap that I'll probably be wearing on the plane in anticipation of coming back. <laughs> and that's because it will be uh, in Asbury Park at the Garden State Film Festival, and Father Tom will be there. What about uh, the movie that many people have seen that uh, Raul Julia was in? And uh, tell us about that. Um, it, yeah, no, it was, and it, it, it plays also a big part in our film because, uh, in 1980, uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero, uh, of El Salvador was, uh, killed, um, by the military junta in El Salvador because he was, um, protesting of the violence that was going on in the country and arguing that we should be standing up for the poor. Um, and it was around this time that Father Bud was, he always, Father Bud always had a social justice heart, but um, it was also around this time that he was becoming more aware of, of, you know, the struggles in other parts, in other countries. You can see the entire interview with the producers of Hollywood Priest by going to the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 and Sunday evening at 6.30 for the next edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal on WBGO and WBGO.org.